Welcome to Policy for the People, a show that explores the public policies that can lift up all Oregonians. This show is a collaboration between KMUZ Radio and the Oregon Center for Public Policy. Today, we're discussing one of the most common forms of theft, and that is taking place in Oregon, wage theft. I'm speaking with Janet Bauer, policy analyst for the Oregon Center for Public Policy, who over the years has done a lot of research on the issue. Janet, recently you wrote a report saying that wage theft is a persistent and widespread problem. Uh, let me start by asking, what exactly is wage theft? Um, thank you so much for inviting me, uh, Ken. I am um, thrilled to be here. Wage theft is most basically when an employer doesn't pay a worker what they're owed under the law. Employers too often engage in illegal practices, and some examples are not paying people overtime, not paying people minimum wage. Some cheat on the number of hours worked or steal tips um, or make unlawful deductions from their pay. And I can give you um, a couple examples. Employees at Applebee's in Bend were regularly asked to clock out but to continue working to avoid uh, getting overtime pay. And sometimes they would, the managers would schedule whole shifts where the employees weren't allowed to clock in and they worked only for tips. There's another recent example uh, with Amazon. Uh, Amazon flex drivers who deliver our packages the company just settled a case for allegedly stealing the tips of these drivers, and according to the federal investigators, Amazon stole about a third of the workers of the drivers' tips. So we are talking about mainstream companies. It's not companies necessarily that don't know the law, and unfortunately, it's too common of an experience in our state. Does wage theft affect particular workers more than others? I have looked at complaints in Oregon um, for quite a few years and noticed that wage theft does occur in every industry. But there are some patterns, and some of the patterns are that workers who are paid lower wages are more vulnerable. So workers who are working in food service or retail uh, or construction, for instance. There may be um, also people, workers in non-unionized settings where they have little power. They are more often to be taken advantage of. These folks also may not be permanent employees. Seasonal employees, uh, laborers in construction are some examples of that. Uh, immigrant workers are also more vulnerable for several reasons. Uh, language barriers prevent them from knowing their rights, and workers can be threatened, being reported to the immigration authorities, for instance. So we do see some patterns, unfortunately, um, and those who are earning the list in general are more likely to experience wage theft uh, in our state. So how extensive is the problem of wage theft here in Oregon? It's clear it's a big problem. Um, all of the research 
and anecdotal evidence points to it being a much more common problem than people might imagine. And I can give you three pieces of evidence. One is there was a survey of workers in low-wage industries in three large cities across the country. And that survey found that workers lost an average of $2,600 annually, which was 15% of their wages were stolen. About a quarter of them were paid less than the minimum wage. There was another survey of day laborers, and that survey actually included Oregon day laborers, and they found that nearly half had been denied pay uh, in the prior two months. Another example is Oregon workers themselves. There has not been a comprehensive survey um, of Oregon workers. However, looking at the complaints that they file with our Labor Bureau is very telling. I have been looking at data for the past 12 years. Thousands of workers every year uh, file claims with the Labor Bureau, and they amount to 3 to $6 million per year. For some context, $3 million is 40 times more than theft sustained by groceries and supermarkets in a year. So the scope of the problem is extensive. We're sure of that. And we need to be doing more to protect workers and ensure that they're getting paid as they should under Oregon and federal law. Obviously, wage theft hurts the individual workers who lose out on the income, does that have a broader impact on society at large? You know, that's a really good point, and I'm glad you brought that up. Um, Wage theft does create, obviously, hardship for workers and their families. Just imagine what would happen to you if all of a sudden you were only paid a portion of your wages that you expected or you didn't get paid at all. Um, You'd be really hard-pressed then to pay for food and rent and take care of your family. It also harms honest businesses. In industries where wage theft is prevalent, it's a real problem for honest businesses because they have unfair competition um, from unscrupulous employers in their field who are undercutting them. So it's a problem in that sense. Uh, But there are also societal impacts. Uh, We know that wage theft causes poverty. It was a really good study commissioned uh, by the U.S. Department of Labor a little while ago that studied the impact of wage theft um, in California and New York, and it found that the study, the study found that wage theft increased poverty in California by 11% and in New York by 32%, and that's a lot. Um, it's important to bear in mind that poverty has long-term consequences for kids in families because it reduces life opportunities, it reduces, you know, poverty reduces lifetime earnings, etc. Wage theft also decreases state revenue. When wages aren't paid, the state can't collect income taxes on those wages, and it also increases use of public assistance. When families have wages stolen, they need to find some way to put food on the table and keep a roof over their head. So they turn to public assistance, such as SNAP and and others. 
it's a problem all the way around. I mean, is this a problem with uh, greed and lack of scruples on some employers, and which is basically why they're doing this wage theft? I mean, is that really what the problem is, or is it deeper than that? There's a couple things. Um, one is... It is deeper. There are some specific practices that employers are doing that can get around wage and hour law to avoid the law altogether. And one of the ways that they do that is by misclassifying someone as an independent contractor when really they are an employee. And there are clear guidelines about this. However, If an employee does not know the law, they may not understand that they are being misclassified. So when you are not an employee, you are not protected by minimum wage law over time, et cetera. The second thing is that employers are including mandatory arbitration agreements in employee contracts. And what happens there is that it ties the hands of an employee who perhaps may have an issue with how the employee is being paid but cannot report it to the state nor sue because they have signed away their rights to do that in these agreements and they are required to go to arbitration. And the arbiter is hired and paid by the employer and universally disfavors the employee. So these are a couple ways structurally that workers are made more vulnerable. There's some deeper issues as well. One is just this power imbalance between workers and employers. There's low unionization rates now, and that leaves workers more vulnerable. We know that many workers are fearful to challenge their circumstances if they uh, are experiencing wage theft for fear of being fired. A union can protect a worker from that, but when you aren't unionized, you don't have that protection. Another factor that creates an opportunity to steal is that it's really the lack of cops on the beat. State and federal authorities really don't have the capacity to enforce labor law. I've looked at capacity of Oregon's Labor Bureau over time, and over several decades, their capacity has really been cut in half because of reductions in staff and growth in our population. So our Labor Bureau is less able to respond when workers do have the courage to come forward. Um, there have been declines, like I said, in, the, in bullies in the Labor Bureau's budget. And the last thing that I'll mention is that there's an opportunity created because our Labor Bureau does not impose penalties. There are few consequences to employers to steal wages. What we see is that Although our Bureau, when it does do an investigation, often does a good job of that uh, and may require an employer to pay the lost, you know, the wages that have not been paid, 
however, does not impose uh, penalties like it could. For instance, I've looked at some data recently, and I found that in just 16% of the claims that were filed were penalties imposed, and just 1% of those claims were penalties paid. There really hasn't been teeth um, exercised by the agency to require employers to pay and have consequences. So essentially what we are looking at for an unscrupulous employer is taking an interest-free loan from their workers. That is the worst-case scenario. If they can get away with it, they will. So they've just improved their bottom line. But if they do get caught, the worst that they would have to do is to pay the wages that they owe. So lack of enforcement is really a, a, a central part of the problem of wage theft. And, you know, I believe is really one of the major reasons why wage theft is so prevalent and persistent. Um, If we had better enforcement, uh, we likely could be making gains in this problem. And and it's solvable. So, Janet, one of the things I'd I'd like a little bit of clarification on Mm -hmm. is gig workers and independent, well, independent contractors, which Mm -hmm. we quite often refer to as gig workers. And you were saying a lot of times they don't know their, their rights under these particular things, but also... You know, if someone is claimed to be an independent contractor, but they're being treated as an employee, what are some examples of things that they should be saying, I'm actually an employee, I'm not an independent contractor? Can can you give us some examples? There are guidelines. Uh, So are you, um, you may be asking, uh, how does someone know if they are? an independent contractor in relation to this person who's paying them, or are they an an employee? Yes. Um, Yeah. So there are some tests that have to be met. The worker has to have a choice as to engaging with that person or not. They have full latitude about how to do their work and when to do their work and can take contracts with other entities. A worker who is providing a service to to an outfit that is not permitted to work the structure of it, either by structure or by decree, that worker is not permitted to work for another organization and take other contracts does not have authority over his or her own time, um, nor how the person does the work. Those are those are clear clues to the fact that this is an employer employee relationship under the law. And one easy way that people can get clarity on what the legal their legal standing is in relation to um, an outfit that's you know, they have this um, relationship, is to check the website of the Oregon Bureau of Labor and, and Industries and Google Independent Contractor, and you will see a list of these tests, these criteria. And many gig 
companies tread very, they go right up to the line. And this is an area that has been contested for a number of years, particularly, you know, with drivers, driving companies. Um, the ride-sharing is one good example uh, where there's definitely been debate and litigation around the relationship, you know, what is a driver, for instance, um, is that person an independent contractor or, or an employee? So it's certainly to the gig company's advantage, financial advantage, to have people who are independent contractors because it saves them from complying with wage and hour law, paying overtime, paying into unemployment insurance, providing benefits. This is a workforce that is fairly relatively new, and it's really clear that our labor laws need to catch up to address the circumstances that folks who are providing these services, they should be protected. Thank you for that clarification. The other thing is, is, you know, you really lay out the case about the problem with enforcement. Is there anything going on the Oregon legislature or the national level to kind of address that issue? There is an effort here in Oregon to address this problem. Um, It really gets at the problem of lack of capacity in our state agency to go to bat for workers. Um, It's a bill that's called the Trust Enforcement Act, and it would it would allow a worker um, to hire, basically, take a case on behalf of the state if the state did not have the capacity to take its claim up, and it could do it could take the case on behalf of him or herself and a group of workers. It's something that has been uh, in force in California for a number of years. It's a system where um, an employer can, excuse me, an employee can go to court and if a judge finds that wages were due, they impose penalties and those penalty payments get distributed partly to the workers, but the majority of them actually go back to the state agency to expand the state agency's capacity to take up cases. So it's a win-win. It's really uh, a system that helps solve the problem through addressing violations of labor law and in so doing, expanding the capacity of the state to take up uh, claims of of all workers. So the Just Enforcement Act, it's being considered in the legislature now, and uh, we're just early in the session, so we have yet to have a first hearing. There are several organizations that are in the lead on it. Um, The Farm Worker Union, PICUN, is one of the leads. Their workers tend to be some of the most vulnerable to wage theft. And so uh, we're working closely with them. 
to help move the, that piece of legislation forward. If listeners are interested, it's House Bill 2205. Could so, you repeat that again? <laughs> House Bill 2205. So if uh, members of the public want to become involved in the issue, uh, what can they do to help besides notify the legislators that this is something that they want to see go through? Are there other things that the public can do? I think that helping support passage of that legislation is one of the most important things that we could do right now. It is one of the most innovative and promising um, approaches to wage theft that we've seen in quite a while. Uh, and we know we've seen it in action in California for a number of years. So connecting with um, lawmakers, but also connecting with um, PICUN, the farm worker organization, there may be instances where you may have a story that could be really useful for the legislature to hear. Those testimonies are being provided virtually right now, but they are an option. Um, so there may be some specific things that you could do with respect to your own uh, elected official to the legislature. So connecting with Picoon, uh would be one important way in which folks who can take action against this problem. We've been speaking with uh, Janet Bauer, the Oregon Center for Public Policy. And where can our listeners go to learn more about your work as well as the Oregon Center for Public Policy? Well, thank you for mentioning that. Um, we have all of the materials that analysis and research uh, up on our website, and that's at ocpp.org. And you just Google wage theft, and you'll see a number of the publications that we've put out and I've authored, um, including the recent one about penalty, lack of penalties. So we'd love to connect with folks that way. You can also get on our mailing list and receive similar publications um, in the future. Janet, I want to thank you for uh, coming on today and talking about wage theft. I, I think I'm, I'm kind of enlightened as to the penalties issue. That was something that I was not expecting to hear and, and be aware of. So thank you very much.